Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge. We apologise for the late arrival of this edition of Skylines. There are there are very good reasons for that, which I won't bore on about here. But for personal reasons, uh, my timetable has been disrupted rather, and I'm going to be a bit inconsistent with getting these things out for the next few weeks. So I can't promise it's going to be weekly at the back end of the week, which is generally what we try to do. But I will try, and we've we've got all sorts of things in the archive which I hope to put out soon enough. So hopefully we shouldn't go too long without an episode. But it's going to be a bit. It's going to be a bit random for a while. Anyway, this week, uh, I'm very excited to have, as a guest, somebody who wrote my favourite book I read last year. And you'll be very pleased to hear that it's all about trains. I'm Matthew Engel, journalist and author, and particularly author of 11 Minutes Late, uh, which was published 10 years ago. And uh, despite the best efforts of the publishers, yeah, it's still earning royalties and doing very well, which I think is testament to the British obsession with railways, which is enduring. I read it last year for the first time, and I didn't realise it was it, it had been out that long. So I, I was... Uh, I was Sorry, nine years. years. 2000, 2009. And I was personally nine, uh, nine years old. <laughs> but, uh, so what... what what inspired you to sort of write a sort of history of the British Railways? Well, I suppose I, I have, as is traditional in British mails, always been fascinated by the railways. And because I'm the person I am, that fascination eventually took on a particular need to write about it. So I wanted to know more. I, I was on the, the sort of fag end of the train spotter generation because I, I still remember steam trains in fact i remember being very excited when we when we first went on a diesel one because it was new and it was diff- different it was a very uh, very 50s 60s way of thinking i suppose then i've seen now nostalgia both for steam trains and for nationalized railways take over completely both of which wouldn't be shared fully by anyone with a clear memory of both 
Something I found particularly interesting about the book actually was the section about how when train spotters first emerged as a phenomenon in the 1950s, they were seen as terrible troublemakers. They were seen as like, like it was like mods and rockers or something, which is not, which doesn't really fit with the image you you have these days, does it? No. Well, of course, the train spotters you still see. There's a a gaggle of them most mornings on Newport Station, where I mostly travel from. However, the numbers do seem to diminish slightly over time, uh, and they are not being replaced. And th- these would be the the very boys who stood uh, on stations, possibly on the same station in their case, 60 years ago, when the, when the fad was at its height. I regret not really being train spotter, actually. The railway was... Uh, only a mile up the road, uh, the main the main line to the north was uh, the, the the line out of Euston, which would have all kinds of interesting stuff. And I, I suppose I was more interested in football and cricket. Fair enough. I mean, that's probably probably uh, the more natural choice. I think at that age. Uh, probably. Um, I don't know. It's a road. It's a it's a road not taken, or a line not taken, or a train <laughs> or, or or a train not taken. I didn't do it, but um, I feel sorry about that. So, so the kind of through line of your book is this a, the, the message that really comes across clearly is that the railway system sort of stumbles from one disaster to another. It's never quite, like, it's it, it somehow sort of done a surprisingly good job, despite the fact that it's always been terrifically badly run, whoever whoever is in charge of it. Is that is that a fair summation? I think that's a perfect summation, better than I could put it. I think not being a, a train spotter instinctively, my affection for the railways has always been nuanced. I like it as a means of travel. I like going by train. I don't like cars very much. I have never particularly enjoyed driving. I've never got the kick out of that that some men do. I I do like the feeling of travelling by train. There is nothing more luxurious to me than the idea of having dinner on a train. Diminishing pleasure, but one I still enjoy. And now that I'm, I'm... As you know, John, I'm travelling around Europe intermittently for the New Statesman and uh, doing profiles of country. And I'm trying, wherever possible, to do everything by train. And I'm, once again, uh, experienced that wonderful relaxation that you only get when you're on a train and not really going anywhere or not going anywhere you have to be at a particular time. Mm. And just uh, revelling in it has always been an enormous pleasure to me. And the... There is something about being on a, a, a train on a long journey, preferably in a nice, quiet carriage with no one else in, in it, or at least no one else you don't know, uh, and and a really good book. That's that's absolute perfection. But it never happens in this country. And what happens in this country, partly because it, this is Britain, partly because I'm always travelling to get somewhere in a hurry and I'm usually late, is stress lateness and cock up so in in europe as i understand it, a lot of the railways are still run by by the various states uh in in britain we've we've got this kind of odd hybrid system where the trains are run by by private operators but but jeremy corbyn's labor party is now talking about uh, about nationalization again is is is, is that going to sort of suddenly bring about this kind of utopian vision of like well, we have these much more relaxed european style trains is, is nationalization going to solve our problems uh, uh, Okay, let's take, let's go back to the history. Uh, my thesis is that every change that's ever been made to the r- railways has basically been a cock-up. And uh, <laughs> uh, that it, with the possible exception of the very beginning of it, which was generally regarded as a complete disaster because 
government did not really intervene. They, they, they had only the lightest of touches. It was complete entrepreneurial free-for-all. You had to get an act of parliament through to build a railway. But essentially, if you got through that, you could build a railway if you were powerful enough. Uh, and didn't run into enough vested interests on the way, like ducal estates and anywhere else, any land belonging to anyone else who might might make trouble, you could build your railway. And that's what people did. And the mania was such, it, like all the great manias of, of history, through tulips and dot-coms and bitcoins and everything else, was such that nobody really thought, were these lines ever going to make money? And in the latter stages, many of them were losing money from about day two. And absolutely crazy, crazy lines were built. And it all happens very quickly, doesn't it? There's a well, sort of 15, 20 year period where most of the British rail network is, goes from, it, it just appears in like 20 years. Most of it, yes. And, uh, and indeed, in the length of time that it now takes to get a small improvement, maybe the, Something like the Audsall Curve in Manchester, mm. uh, it was about 200 yards of extra line uh, in order to improve uh, connections between uh, uh, one side of Manchester and another. It's taken decades to get that to get that done. 200 yards of it, and thousands of miles were built in the same period of time. Now the general feeling of, I suppose, most railway historians was that this was all anarchic and ridiculous and that foreigners did it much better. The Belgians, who have actually the most extensive railway system in the world, though not the most not the most efficient, actually sort of planned it on paper. And the German railways were essentially handed over to the Prussian army. The Prussian army were, were more or less in charge of how the German railways were built. And that was specifically for uh, what the Prussian army had in mind. Uh, which was not nice, as we as subsequent events proved. And yet, the weird thing is that when war came, and particularly the Second World War, it was the British that had the advantage because of the, the complete anarchic overbuilding of railways actually turned to our advantage because there were so many routes that were hardly ever used, snaking through countryside. They were actually perfectly designed to move munitions, essential supplies, coal, everything that the war effort needed could be moved through in a way that the Germans would be very would find very, very hard to bomb and destroy. And there were always alternative routes. There's redundancy in the system, basically. Yeah, it's but it's actually... to knock out the railways between London and the North because there's half a dozen of them. Yeah, well, and there were th- hundreds of other diversionary routes which were, which were very slow and cumbersome and inadequate, but were perfect for moving goods around. So actually, Britain had a huge advantage rather than the Germans who'd prepared their... Who, who had prepared their system precisely to move troops, uh, was actually much more vulnerable to being bombed in a peculiar, very British, muddling through way. That worked. Very little else, in my <laughs> view, did. I want to move the, move the chronology forward yeah. a little bit, but yeah. before we do, why do you think it's... Why was it so much easier to build stuff 
in the in the nineteenth century than it is now? Is it just like property rights were much weaker? What's what's changed that kind of meant we could build thousands of miles in fifteen years and two hundred yards now? Uh, well, I think fewer people complained to start with. Mm. NIMBYism was not the force that it now is, unless you were you were powerful enough to um, uh, to prevent it. And on, on the whole, people did relish what the railways brought. It was an, a huge change in people's lives and in, the, in, 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 in commerce. Things that simply didn't didn't exist before. You could the the, the increase in the, the quality of life in the goods you could get in your ability to, to get around the country. Remember, they were travelling by stagecoach until the 1830s. So, so is it a better... Is it like people got very excited about being linked to broadband when that along? Is it that kind of thing? Like people could immediately see the advantages in a way that they perhaps can't with slight changes? Yes, and exactly as with broadband, if you haven't got it, you you, you damn well want it. Mm. And and the railways were very much like, like that. When a, a new small town was linked into the railway network it was a great it was a great event and made a huge difference to the town in all kinds of ways so the atlee government comes in and nationalizes all sorts of things but one of the things it creates well first of all first of all very briefly they they the the railway started to to decline really after the first world war you're already beginning to see the first beginnings of decline because you were starting to get competition coming from from cars and lorries so even by the 1920s you're beginning to see Decline. Um, the remedy the government took in 1923 was to merge all the companies into four big ones, big big four, which achieved very little. Uh, after the war, the Atlee government was nationalising everything and the railways were clearly on the list. They had no plan. It was part of an ideological programme. They had no idea what they were doing and why. And the system set up to run the railways in, in, in the early days was absolute, absolutely terrible, which then, as the losses mounted and political criticism grew, that led to, with the Tories back in power, a fairly gently, gentle form of conservatism uh, for the most part, uh, but that led to the the feeling that something had to be done about the railways. The railways were the past. The car was the future. Mm. Motorways were cut, were coming in. This was the future. The railways were losing massive amounts of money. Who's going to do something about that? And the answer was Dr. Beijing. Still, this extraordinarily powerful historic figure who has this extraordinary impact on people. When I, when I wrote this book, uh, I said, oh, I'm doing a book about the railways. And people would say, oh, you're writing about beaching then. Mm. Well, yes, but lots of other people too. There's, but, and there's so many government reports that come out every year, many of which have the name of their kind of lead researcher attached. Most of these get ignored even at the time. They're not remembered 50, 60 years later. Like the beaching report is kind of a real landmark, right? Yes, he was. He he he. He was also. He was the chairman of the British Railways. He'd been brought in first of all to advise by this other remarkable figure. Hasn't endured quite as much, but Ernie Marples, who was the Minister of Transport, who at the time he was almost as famous as the Prime Minister. There was something about him. He had a certain. He was. Um, he was very charismatic. Extremely dodgy. He died in Monte Carlo, and how 
How, you know, how dodgy, how yeah. dodgy, uh, can, can, can you, can you get, anyway. can you get? He was a very, he was a very modern figure. He was, he was very much unlike the old mold of uh, politicians. He was, a, he was communicative. He was innovative. He was probably corrupt, but, um, but he had a certain something. And there, there, there was a sign that said, uh, Marples must go that was still on a motorway bridge. I think until about 10 years ago. Was somewhere on the M1 around Newport Bagnall, Marples Must Go uh, was still there. Between the two of them, Beeching was told to sort out the railways. And here, you know, this was, this in itself was met with a popular feeling. Railways were the past, out, out with the past. The press reports that greeted the original Beeching report were extraordinarily favourable, uh, almost grovelling. Uh, I, I was quite staggered when I read them. It wasn't what I expected uh, at all. Uh, he must have had a fairly uh, 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 a fairly Good strong PR. sense of PR, yeah. and in the days when he would have, that would have been an instinct rather than a, a, a huge great team of them. So, so just to summarise, the report basically talked about shutting down almost everything except the main intercity routes and the London commuter network. Is that is that fair? Uh, Yes, that's largely what it was. There was also actually much more importantly, really at the time, was the um, was the huge diminution of the, of the freight network, which was losing massive massive amounts of money, and that in a way was certainly as 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 important, but of course was much much less noticed. The eventual closures that happened more or less took took the form of that Beeching suggested. Some lines were saved. Some some things were in there that seeming would seem incredible to us now. For instance, the North London line, mm. which not not merely is now is now part of the overground, extraordinarily important metropolitan route. Uh, it's also a, a vital part of the freight network. So uh, that didn't that didn't happen. Some lines were safe. Some some lines were actually closed that he he he, he didn't recommend closing. And of, of course, a lot of this stuff, there were, there were lines, many of which had already gone, but some of which were still there, which was simply uh, unused. I've got in the book, uh, if I may mention that for a second, I've got extraordinary <laughs> stories about some of these mad, rustic routes that nobody ever went on. There was an enormous amount of railway coverage in northern Norfolk, wasn't there? Like this place with a population of about a dozen people had four railway lines or something. Uh, there, there's... Um, yeah, and and they tried they tried to bring them back. Melton Constable was a, a was a little village in Norfolk. I, I interviewed the last station master uh, for the for the for the book. But, um, it was a huge railway junction uh, at the time uh, on uh, on a, uh, an outfit that uh, was originally known as the Midland and Great Northern, or more often called the Muddle and Go Nowhere. <laughs> Beaching was a right to see that things needed pruning. What he couldn't see, it was a real future for the railways at all. All he saw was was the management of decline. That's what he thought he was doing. And that basically the, 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 the railway network would become a, a very minor part of British transport. He couldn't envisage that the very rise of the car would in itself create impossible amounts of pollution and congestion that would in themselves be part of the movement back to the railway. He couldn't foresee, perhaps understandably, the extent to which patterns of commuting would change 
and so on. But basically, he had no, he had no, he had no vision for the railways at all, no positive vision, and that to me is the huge error that he that he, that he made. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How long did it take between the beaching reports and the railways actually starting to... When did passenger numbers start to increase again? When's the bounce back? I... I think you start to see it in the in the in the in the nineteen eighties that you begin you begin to see numbers starting to creak up with the expansion with partly with the, uh, as the economy started to expand and the you had the decline of the decline of industry the growth of finance and therefore much, many more people commuting long distances and particularly into London to work and that's when you see people coming back onto back onto trains, the rise in student numbers, I think, was a big factor mm. because students use trains. You've now got many more people going to university, which they didn't uh, didn't do before, uh, and they essentially travel by train. I'm I just this has just popped into my head. This might be nonsense, but I was wondering if the population of London is falling until about the mid nineteen eighties. There's an inf- we don't know exactly when because censuses only have, happen every ten years. But there's an inflection point at some point in the nineteen eighties where London stops shrinking and starts growing again. And I'm wondering if that may be a factor, even that London is so much the cornerstone of the railway network. Well, of course, within Greater London, you're that you would be talking more about the underground. What I think may be more relevant was is the it was the shift back to the southeast. Remember, until the nineteen seventies, there was a very deliberate co- uh, government policy to get people out of the southeast. Mm-hmm. They were they were building new towns. You'd go on to the tube, and you would see the the charms of uh, living in Skelmersdale or Milton Keynes or Telford being advertised and it would look absolutely look yeah. absolutely wonderful and civil the civil service and and companies were being were being subsidized to move out of out out of London um, this was all stopped by by the Thatcher government 
quite early on. They weren't interested in this. This was all part of what was the sort of discredit, discredited uh, corporate government. And I think that sort of movement back of commerce into the southeast, I think as a, as a whole, probably had, had had the biggest effect on the railway. So it's something we're not talking about as one of the causes here is is privatization which happens in 96 <laughs> like it's very, like if we're talking about the growth starts to come back in the 80s is privatization and the better and the as well, the private train operating companies would have us believe better service that provides is that a factor here in the story no right well what one thing a couple of things about railways in the 80s firstly margaret thatcher really didn't want to privatize the railways she sensed without quite knowing why, that this was something she ought not to, to know. I think it was some sort of women's intuition that the railways, for some reason she didn't quite understand, had some powerful mooty that worked on the British mail, and she really didn't understand it, And she, but she knew she ought not to interfere with it. She left the railways alone. It was a kind of malign neglect. She wasn't interested in them, but she didn't interfere. And... The consequence of that was, in fact, very beneficial because the railways were much less bothered by government in that period than they normally were. And they, be- they began at last to get their, their, get their act together. They were, that was the whole period of what were then the new high-speed trains that was, which came in in 1976. There was then a re- reorganization that created Intercity, which was a very successful brand. And really into the 1990s, British Rail losses were going down. It was really as well run as it has ever been at any time in, in history and probably better. And in to, to this situation, with great clod-hopping boots, marched John Major and decided to privatise it. So how big a part of the story is privatisation? Does it, does it, is, is it irrelevant, I guess, is what I'm wondering here? Well, it's the ultimate cock-up. Not so much in what it did to the railways, where the impact was remarkably small, but the amount of money it cost for no purpose whatever. The gains from privatisation were just negligible, and anyone that says that the reason there are more people on the railways is because of the success of park privatisation is talking complete and utter rubbish. It was it was a terrible privatisation. John Major is, is I, I might say, is a, a man I like and um, in many ways admire, but I think he was victim of successor syndrome. You know, the fact well, the, the the same thing that um, afflicted Gordon Brown and uh, is now afflicting Theresa May, is that they're trying to do two things at once. They're, they're um, trying to distinguish themselves from the opposition, uh, but also from their predecessor. Mm-hmm. They're having to, 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 to find their own agenda. Uh, and and fran- frankly, after the Thatcher years, everyone wanted a break, which Major you know, did provide in many ways. It was a kind of gentler form of Thatcherism, but he had this feeling that he had to do something. Privatisation was put into the manifesto for the 1992 election, which everyone expected him to lose, yeah, rather as happened with the, the Brexit <laughs> referendum, uh, and they unexpectedly won, uh, and they were stuck with it. When uh, John McGregor was a Minister of Transport, both before 
and after the election. And uh, there's a story about McGregor turning up on uh, his first day back in the office uh, and saying, first of all, where are the plans for privatisation then? And said, uh, well, Minister, we weren't expecting to see you, I'm afraid. <laughs> and McGregor was forced by Major, was told by Major, to sort of come up with a plan within, I think it was six weeks. Well, of course, it was a mess. And they took this really terrible decision to separate the infrastructure and the trains, which is an absolute disaster. And the costs, all hidden, all hidden. The cost in lawyers' fees alone for this process. Lawyers tend to do very well out of this. Oh, did, oh, did they? Yeah. That, that I think probably, mm. probably more, more, more than anything. It was, it, it, it was simply mad, and we are still living with the with the consequences. But it had there was one aspect of genius to it, and it's something that I don't think Jeremy Corby grasped. And it's something that Tony Blair got. Tony Blair had promised before 1997 that he would reverse the privatisation of the railways. because he did no such thing and had no interest in doing such things. John Prescott, who was in charge of transport in the early days of the Blair government, was in fact was quite keen on some kind of mixed system, which I think would have been interesting had it happened. But what Blair got very quickly was the sheer genius of privatisation in this one respect. And I don't, th- I don't think it was intentional. Through all the years of nationalisation, when anything went wrong on railways, the Minister of Transport had to get up in the Commons and take the blame. Chaos on the Brighton line, Minister of Transport in trouble. An accident, Minister of Transport in, in, in trouble. Losing billions more, same thing. Suddenly... It was no longer the government's problem. Mm. They could always fob off the blame. And of course it happens. We, we have this situation now, this is ongoing, involving exactly the Brighton, Brighton line. And the government just shrug their shoulders in public and say, well, the company have got to sort this out. It is, it is. Nothing to do with us. It's a sort of constant bafflement to me that Chris Grayling is not a more unpopular man. Because there have been enormous numbers of cock-ups on his watch, yet he's sailed through life with this sort of blessed anonymity. And this is precisely why. And this was the genius of privatisation. I think it was a pure accident. And it's countered by the other much more perverse effect of it, which is it made the unions more powerful, and most particularly the drivers' union. Because until then... There was only one employer. So if Aslef wanted a pay rise and didn't get it, they had nowhere else to go. Mm. Not going to go and get a job in Belgium or France. They had, <laughs> there was no alternative. But now, can't get a pay rise out of one company, get a better deal from another one. Because skilled tra- train drivers are, are always in demand. And they became, they did hugely well out of it. So the obvious question is, will nationalisation would a future nationalisation make any substantive difference to the railways? What do you what do you think would would change? Well, history suggests not. I think Labour at least avoiding the one terrible mistake. It is not going to be a massive instant reorganisation, but more a a very slow process. And to that extent, I think they're being clever. What I'm much more sceptical about is whether 
the marginal difference it will make in terms of money not being creamed off for the franchisee. And franchising is a terrible system, but it does impose certain certain disciplines on people who run the trains, people who work for them, and in all in all kinds of ways. There's very very clear guidelines. Once you go back to what will become an old-fashioned and presumably monolithic nationalised industry without even the kind of very limited competition that you have now. I think that we will start to see the kind of downside, a repeat of the downside of British Rail, which was... You know, for the most part, a pretty unresponsive body, and where your and where the passengers will go hang every bit as much as they do do now. I'm not I'm not optimistic about it because I've never seen any of these changes <laughs> uh, have have an improvement. So everything I've said up till now, I think, is going to come true again in a different way. Also, I think what he hasn't taken into account because. The leader of the Labour Party, if I may say so, is not the most worldly wise politician that we've ever had. I don't think he understands that that, that it then becomes his problem. He Anything that goes wrong on the railways, he'll be to blame. That There has been this fantastic period that there has not been a single passenger fatality on the railways for I think it's 10 years which is astonishing, completely unprecedented. No passenger has been killed in an accident uh, for 10 years now, which is uh, quite extraordinary. Let's say when the sad day comes that, that that sequence is broken, it happens on one of Corbyn's nationalised routes. Whose fault is, is it going to be? Mm-hmm. The point being that it's it's the politics of the situation poli- rather than it's bad politics. Yes. I, I think you'll find. I think he'll find it's bad politics, and I think I, I, I do think that there, there is a point here. It is a ridiculous situation that we do have nationalised railways because the train companies are being run by the, the nationalised railway of Holland, of Belgium, of Germany. Uh, of France, they've all got mm. they, 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 they've all got shares in it. Uh, I can tell you, as a someone who has to travel on the Riva Trains Wales, owned by Deutsche Bahn, that uh, the German railways would not treat their passengers this badly <laughs> if they were German. Uh, this is a this is a f- form of colonialism. It's it ridiculous. Brexit, it is, um, well, no, it, it predates that, Brexit, but it, mm. it is ridiculous that no British. No British nationalised company would be part of that. Can, can be part of that, but I, I would. There would be a loss of expertise if all you got was some new British nationalised mm. company, and we went back to the worst of the old system. That's the fear. I fear this is a very depressing point to end on. So uh, let's 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 very briefly end on a happier note. You spend a lot of time sort of travelling the the railway network mm. for your book. What's what was your favourite line? Oh, there's a, it's a there's a there's a there's a lovely line in Norfolk. I think it's the one that goes from Norwich to Yarmouth. I think I'm right. It's the, I think it's the one from Norwich to Yarmouth, which is absolutely gorgeous. The, the line that goes from Glasgow to to the southern part of the sky to Fort William and Malek, that is that is absolutely sensational. Uh, and there is a lovely little eccentric line, which is the one that goes to Lou in Cornwall. That's uh, um, that's 
Uh, that's delightful. Oh, that's a much happier note to end on. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, John. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.